Good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for coming and worshiping with us on this beautiful Sunday morning. And it's good, beautiful outside. It's beautiful inside. Beautiful to see all of you. Glad that you are here to be able to join us in worshiping together. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. You've been on that journey with us. You'll know that we are getting close to the end of our study through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, as a matter of fact, just this past Sunday, we, we really spent time studying and looking at the death of Jesus on the cross. In fact, back in verse 34, we, we saw that his cry of dereliction on the cross where he, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then down in verse 37, we read that he cried out once again in a loud voice and then breathed his last and what we learned was that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was forsaken by his Father. And he, on the cross, bore the full brunt of God's wrath against sin so that my sin debt and your sin debt could be paid in full. And in fact, what I, I stated in my sermon in the sentence last week was just simply this, that the God-forsaken death of Jesus opens access to God for all sinners who come to him in faith. So that's what the death of Jesus signifies. And that was our most recent study. And, and, and having come through our, our examination of all that Jesus went through on the cross, all the mocking and all the suffering that he endured, we might be tempted to just jump ahead and, and, and want to get to chapter 16 and read about his resurrection. And the Lord willing, we'll come back to those verses next week. But, but, there's still some other verses left here in, in Mark 15 that, that describe the burial of Jesus. In fact, this is what's interesting. In my studying and in my, my preparation for this sermon, I went back and read a lot of different sermons and looked at a lot of different uh, commentaries as they um, described the, the ending events of, of Mark chapter 15. And there was a great temptation for them to just move directly from the crucifixion to the resurrection. And, and I couldn't help but think, well, maybe part of that is because of all the pain that we see that Jesus went through when he was on the cross. And we, we, we want to move on from those very negative and, and unhappy thoughts to more happy thoughts. Or maybe it's because when we, when we see Jesus on the cross, we are forced to, to really uh, contemplate the weight of our sin and what it costs for our Savior to secure our pardon. And perhaps because of that, our natural inclination is is to just move on to the resurrection where we are able to have happier thoughts about new life and, and, and hope that springs from, from death. And, and certainly the resurrection offers us those thoughts. The resurrection offers us that hope. But as a key passage that the Apostle Paul wrote later in, in 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, he lays out the core doctrines of Christianity. And when he does... He identifies the necessity and the importance of Jesus' burial. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3. He says, For what I received, I, would pa I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Now, when Paul writes that, he has certainly come to understand the importance of the burial of Jesus. And, and so evidently did all the other gospel writers. 
not just Mark, but all the all others of the gospel writers take us through the details that surrounded the burial of Jesus. And I would submit to you that those details are very important. In fact, each gospel writer adds a little different nuance to the description of Jesus' burial. And this morning, I'm going to refer to those as we work our way through Mark's account. But I want to begin by hearing Mark's words. And I want to hear by hearing him tell us who was there around the cross when Jesus died and then describe the events that took place once Jesus' body had been taken down from the cross. And so let's pick up in verse 40 of Mark chapter 15 and read down through the end of the chapter. Notice what Mark says. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and Joseph, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, day that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out that the centurion, from the centurion, he granted the body of jo to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to be able to open the scriptures, to be able to read them. And I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and, and tune us into the Holy Spirit this morning. Help us to be able to recognize the truth of the word that we've just read. Help us to apply it faithfully to our hearts and help us as we leave this place to live lives that are transformed lives, lives that our, our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers would be able to see and, and lives that would give testimony to the great grace and mercy that you offer to us. I ask this not only for our good, but I ask this ultimately for your glory. For it is in the name of Christ that I pray. Amen. I would propose to you that the burial of Jesus is an important component of the Christian doctrine. And I hope to convince you of that this morning as we study this passage together. As I have done in previous weeks, I'm, I'm going to do again today. I, I just want to provide you with a simple outline that's composed of some words that I think will help us organize our thoughts together as we move through this passage. And so the first word that I've given you this morning that I want us to consider is just this. It's eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. There is an interesting and somewhat surprising element that Mark introduces to us in verse 40 that, quite frankly, we might miss if we didn't pay attention to the text. Mark tells us that when Jesus died, there were a number of women who were looking on from afar. And then he even goes on to list a few of their names. The first one, he says, is Mary Magdalene. And then he says that another one is Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph, or as the NIV puts it, James the Younger and Joseph. 
And then the third woman that he names is the name Salome. Now, we are perhaps the most familiar with Mary Magdalene. She is the one who, uh, when Luke writes his gospel, tells us, was delivered of seven demonic spirits that had, had invaded her and had taken over her life and had created so much torment for her. And Jesus had delivered her of those seven spirits. And out of her gratefulness and love for Jesus, she followed him the rest of his earthly ministry. Everywhere he went. Now, the identity of the other two women there is a little less definitive, and scholars kind of differ on who they may be. Some maybe think that it, one of them was the mother of Jesus, and others think that it maybe was the mother of, uh, of James and John. The truth is we can't be 100% sure, but, but regardless, there were named women who many who Mark wrote to knew who they were talking about. And he says it wasn't just them. There were many other women who were there who, according to verse 41, had followed Jesus. They had ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and they also had come up with him to Jerusalem. So they were there, and they watched as Jesus died. Now, I would contend to you, with you that, that what Mark has told us in these verses is quite noteworthy. You see, in verses 40 and 41, Mark presents us with an element of Jesus' ministry that heretofore he has not mentioned and said anything about. What we learn in these verses for the first time in Mark's gospel is that beyond the 12 male disciples who followed Jesus, there were a number of women also who followed him throughout his earthly ministry. And, and I believe that by waiting till this point in his gospel narrative to communicate about this relationship that these women had with Jesus, I believe that Mark is communicating that they played a very important role. You see, the women that Mark names, along with the many others that stood there at a distance, they observed all that took place on Calvary's Hill. And in fact, unlike Jesus' male disciples who had abandoned him at this point and left him, his, his female followers were still there and they had followed him throughout his earthly ministry. They had not only followed him there, they'd followed him all the way to the cross and now they sat there and looked on from afar and watched him as he breathed his last. And what makes their inclusion in this gospel account so important is that Mark presents them as the eyewitnesses to the world of what took place with Jesus. In fact, they not only watched Jesus die, if you look down in verse 47, the two Marys also observed the exact tomb into which Jesus' body were, was laid. And according to Luke's gospel, they not only observed where he was laid, they observed how or in what manner Jesus' body was laid in the tomb. Therefore, these women are the eyewitnesses to the physical death of Jesus and to the exact place and with the details surrounding his burial. And as we will come back to, the Lord willing, next Sunday morning, we will see that they were also the eyewitnesses to his resurrection. So that's the first thing that I think we need to understand about this text. Mark is giving us the names, identities, and, and a description of the eyewitnesses to the the true physical bodily death of our Lord Jesus Christ. That leads me to the second point that I want us to see this morning, and it's the second word for us to consider is the word boldness. Boldness. Not only does Mark introduce us for the first time to a group of women, but he also introduces us for the first time to a man whose name was Joseph of Arimathea. In fact, 
Joseph of Arimathea is introduced by all four gospel writers at this point for the very first time. And that's, that's instructive as well. Mark tells us in verse 43 that Joseph of Arimathea was a prominent council member. And by that, what Mark means is that he was a prominent member, an important, well-known member of the Sanhedrin. Matthew adds that he was a rich man. And as we know, wealth often accompanies prominence and it also accompanies position. Mark also says that, that Joseph of Arimathea was waiting for the kingdom of God. In other words, he was a man who was, who was religious. In fact, Luke calls him a good and a just man. Both Matthew and John tell us that he had become a disciple of Jesus. But John gives us an important addendum to that. He tells us that he had remained secret in his discipleship because of his fear of his fellow Jews. Even Luke says this about him, that even though he was a member of the Sanhedrin, Luke said he had not consented to their decision and their deed. Now, when you take all of this information from all the gospel writers and you compile it into a, a, a picture, you get an interesting and puzzling picture of one Joseph of Arimathea. Evidently, he was a man who had evaluated the claims of Christ and had believed in him. He was someone who was truly looking for the kingdom of God to come, and he had evidently believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Yet it also appears that because of his position in society, because of his wealth, because of, of, of his affluence, and because of the high price that it would have cost him, Joseph of Arimathea had remained a secret disciple. In other words, he had, he had kind of hung around on the fringes, kind of in the shadows, rather than getting into the middle of things where the action was. Consider this. On the previous night, when Jesus had been arrested and taken before the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, the high priest, had condemned Jesus of blasphemy. And Mark tells us in chapter 14, verse 64, that they all, in other words, all the Sanhedrin, condemned Jesus to be deserving of death. My question is, why didn't Joseph of Arimathea object? Mark tells us in verse 43 that he was a prominent, he was a highly respected member of the Sanhedrin Council. Joseph of Arimathea had clout. He had influence. Why didn't he stand up for Jesus? Why didn't he declare his belief that Jesus was truly the Son of God and the Savior of the world? I find it interesting. As I mentioned before, that Luke tells us that Joseph had not consented to the council's decision indeed, yet evidently his dissent was not voiced. Though he had not agreed with what they intended to do and decided to do, he did not stand up and argue for the innocence of Christ. That, to me, creates a great irony in this text. You see... Though Joseph of Arimathea did not try to intervene in any way, either by speaking up on Christ's behalf to the council or by trying to stop the guards from beating him up after the trial was over with, Mark tells us, though, that, that after Jesus had died on the cross, Joseph of Arimathea summoned up his courage. Really, the word is he gathered his courage to himself and he went boldly before Pilate to ask for Jesus' body. And listen, it would have taken boldness to go before Pilate to beg for Jesus' body. After all, Jesus had been condemned as an enemy of the, of the state. 
The sign that hung above his head on the cross was king of the Jews, which let everyone know that the reason he had been crucified was because he had been convicted of being a usurper of, of Caesar's authority. And so for, for Joseph of Arimathea to identify himself with one who had been an enemy of the state would have been very dangerous for himself, but it would have been even more dangerous in some respects for him because of his relationship with the Sanhedrin. Consider that the Sanhedrin would have now labeled him. His, his, his fellow members of the Sanhedrin would now label him at worst being a Jesus sympathizer, but, but also a Jesus follower because he went and begged for Jesus' body. Joseph of Arimathea's power and his prominence and his position in society would have adversely affect, been adversely affected by him going and claiming Jesus' body to bury it. Those things that he had so desired to protect were now at risk. And so we might ask, what was it that caused this secret disciple whose power and whose prominence and position in society were so important to him that he had remained in the shadows rather than openly coming out and embracing Christ? What caused him to suddenly find his courage? Well, as Jeff Thomas has stated, he says the great change that took place was at the cross. In fact, he states it very simply. He says, Calvary changes people. Calvary changes people. Consider this. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. What has just happened on the cross? Jesus has been there, and what we see as a result of his crucifixion is that a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin who condemned him is drawn to him. We also know from what Luke tells us is that one of the thieves hanging on the cross who also taunted him has been drawn to him. The centurion, as we looked at last week, who actually put Jesus to death has been drawn to him. A religious elite, a criminal, and a Gentile, all of them have been drawn to Jesus and they are saying things and they are doing revolutionary things before the whole world because of what they had witnessed that took place on the cross. Brothers and sisters, what that tells us is that when you come to the cross, there are no big eyes and no little U's. My dad always used to say that as a kid growing up. He says there's no big eyes, there's no little U's at the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And what I want you to understand is that because that is the case, you who look at the cross cannot truly understand it and still hold contempt and disdain for someone else. When we consider the death of Jesus and the penalty that he paid for our sin, we cannot truly consider ourselves better than anyone else. Jesus' death cuts across all racial, all ethnic, and all gender lines. His grace and His mercy are available to all people regardless of their skin color, regardless of their background, regardless of anything in their past because every man, woman, boy, and girl who has ever been born is in need of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And when we look at the cross, what we will find is that the power of the cross is there to change us. It evidently changed Joseph of Arimathea. It brought, him, it brought him out of the shadows and brought him into the spotlight. And he was willing to go to Pilate and beg for the body of Christ. And what I want you to know is that he was no longer a secret disciple. I love what Alistair Begg 
has written with regard to that. He says, if you are a secret disciple, in other words, if you are one who, who believes without confessing, Begg says this, he says, either your secrecy will destroy your discipleship or your discipleship will destroy your secrecy. You can't have both. Perhaps some of you this morning are sitting there and you need to grapple with that reality. Perhaps some of you say in your heart that you believe in Jesus, but either by your actions or by your words, you never openly confess Him. If that's the case, you should realize what the Apostle Paul says about such things and about being a secret disciple. He says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 8, verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in his glory of his Father with the holy angels. So when we look at Joseph of Arimathea, what we realize is that the cross gave him a boldness. A boldness to go before Pilate and to beg of the body of Jesus so that he might bury him. And as a result of that boldness, what we see is the fulfillment of Scripture take place. In fact, that's the third word on your outline that I want you to see this morning. It's the word fulfillment. Fulfillment. Notice that in verse 42, it reminds us that it was preparation day, the day before the Sabbath. And though the Romans preferred to leave their victims of crucifixion on their respective crosses in order to decay in the Judean sun, in order to continue to, desert, to, to serve as a deterrent against ever-breaking Roman law. Even though that was the case, you also see that the Jews had their own custom, and that was is that bodies would not remain on the cross overnight, according to Deuteronomy and, and laws that were there, but also according to just the understanding that the Sabbath was the next day. In fact, it is John who alerts us to this more than, than, than Mark does. In John chapter 19, beginning in verse 31, John says this, Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. It's an interesting, interesting tidbit. As we discussed, when, 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 when someone was crucified on the cross, the way that they were able to continue to live is often they would have to push their bodies up to get a breath, but then often their bodies would sink back down, and it was the process of that sinking down that would suffocate them. And so the Jews said, we want you to break their legs so that they can't push themselves up. It was a truly horrible, horrible way to die. John goes on to says, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with Jesus, but when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And then John says this, And he who has seen and has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe, for these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They shall look on him whom... They pierced. Jesus Christ was the perfect Passover lamb. And as a perfect Passover lamb, not a bone of his body could be broken. And so he died before that ever took place on the cross, thereby fulfilling the prescription of, of Scripture and also fulfilling the prophecy that had been made of him in Scripture. 
Now, since, since the Sabbath began at sundown or at 6 p.m. on Friday, and since Mark has told us that Jesus breathed his last at 3 p.m. that afternoon, then we recognize that time is of an essence. If, if he is going to get his body and get his body in the tomb before the Sabbath began, then, then Joseph Arimathea had to work quickly. And notice how quickly he gains an audience with Pilate. That also gives testimony to his prominence and his position that he would be given that kind of an, uh, uh, an opportunity to speak directly with Pilate so soon. But notice that when he asked for Jesus' body, Pilate is surprised that Jesus is already dead. That just goes back to what we said. This was a long process typically for the crucifixion, sometimes taking even days. So in his surprise, he summoned the centurion who had been at the foot of the cross and had overseen the crucifixion to ask of him, is he truly dead? And the centurion told him just as much that he had already died. And so Pilate granted the body to Joseph of Arimathea, who Mark says then went out and bought fine linens to wrap Jesus' body in. The Jews did not practice embalming the way that we do in our society or even the way that the Egyptians did in their day. Instead, what they did was they took linen cloths and they wrapped those cloths around all of the body. And all the while they were wrapping those cloths, they would take aloe and myrrh and, and mix those things together and, and mix that in with the wrapping so that it, it soaked in and it would be the smell of that ointment that they would create that would there to keep down the smell of the decaying flesh of the person who had died. That was the burial process that the Jews employed. But what I want you to notice is consider how important that process was as it pertains to Jesus. After all, we don't hear about what took place with the two others that were next to Jesus. We know that they broke their legs. We don't know what happened to their bodies after they had been taken down. Perhaps they had family there to come and claim their bodies, but in all likelihood, their bodies were taken down from their respective crosses and they were taken and dumped into the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem where they would have been burned. That place is the place referred to in Scripture as Gehenna. It's a place that is often translated as hell in our New Testament. And many times that's exactly where those who have been crucified as enemies of the state were taken and their bodies disposed of there. And that would have very likely have been what had happened to Jesus had Joseph of Arimathea not intervened. You notice that none, none of Jesus' family, his mother, though she was at the cross, was not there to, to claim Jesus' body. None of his disciples who had abandoned him had come back to claim Jesus' body. Only Joseph of Arimathea had, the, had been bold enough and courageous enough to go and beg for Jesus' body in order to bury him. And Mark says that once they took his body down, they wrapped it in a linen cloth. We must not assume that Joseph did this on his own. He was a rich man, so he very likely had servants to help him. John tells us that Nicodemus, the one that we are first introduced to in John chapter 3 and again later in John's gospel and then finally shows up at the end, he is also a secret disciple of Jesus, but he came out after Jesus' death and he brought a large amount of the myrrh and the aloes to, the, to the, the, the burial site to anoint the body of Jesus along with Joseph of Arimathea. And here's what I want us to note. It should be noted that the fine linens that were used to wrap Jesus' body were expensive. So were the aloes and the myrrh that Nicodemus brought. 
And then in his gospel, John tells us that the tomb into which Jesus' body was laid was located in a garden. And it was, that was indicated that it was an expensive tomb. And it was also a tomb in which no other person had ever been laid. And when we put all of that information together, what we understand is that while Jesus died a horrible and excruciating and humiliating death, and though his body could have easily ended up in a garbage heap, he was nevertheless buried like a king. Wrapped in the finest linens, soaked in an abundance of expensive ointment, and laid in a brand new tomb. And even that is the fulfillment of exactly what the prophet Isaiah had said would happen in Isaiah 53 verse 9, where it says that he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Now, I began today by making the case that all of these details that Mark and the other gospel writers share with us are important and deserve our consideration. Why? Well, consider this. Mark makes it clear that the women who had followed Jesus throughout his ministry were the same ones who were there to watch him die and that they stayed there until his body had been placed in the tomb and they saw the stone rolled in front of that tomb in order to seal him inside. Those women knew two things for sure. They knew that Jesus was dead and they knew exactly where his body had been laid. Furthermore, consider this. When Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for Jesus' body, Pilate inquired of the centurion who had been at the foot of the cross and the centurion came and affirmed to Pilate that Jesus was truly dead. Then as Joseph and as Nicodemus and the others wrapped painstakingly Jesus' body for burial, they surely would have noticed if there had been any physical life left in Jesus' body, if his eyes were still twitching or if he was still breathing in any way. But they did not. All of these details provides us with this answer to the heresies that soon erupted. And that is that Jesus just swooned when he was on the cross that he just really passed out. He really didn't die. The suffering that he went through only caused him to appear as dead, but then when he was placed inside that cool rock tomb, that the cool air caused him to resuscitate and be revived. Notice that all of these testimonies from these eyewitnesses and these ones who are here speak firmly against such heresies as that. But also consider this. Even though Jesus had said that he would die, and that he would rise again. If the body had ended up in that garbage dump in Gehenna, if it had been burned like the others who were crucified, if his body had never been buried, then how would there have been any way to confirm that he had truly risen from the dead? We might even consider it from the other side. If Jesus' body had never been buried into a known tomb, then his followers could have claimed that he rose from the dead and there would have been no way that the authorities could have denied that it took place. In fact, according to Matthew's gospel, that was a legitimate concern of the Jewish leadership. And that's why they requested of Pilate to put a, a guard at Jesus' tomb to ensure that none of his disciples came and stole it away and then would claim that he had risen. So when we consider all of these things, then, then we have to come to some conclusions. And I want to read one to you from... from fellow that I continue to, to quote, his name is J.C. Ryle. The reason why I quote him is because he's good. J.C. Ryle has written this. He says, the infinite wisdom of God 
foresaw the objections of unbelievers and provided against them? Did the Son of God really die? Did he really rise again? Might there not have been some delusion as to the reality of his death? Might there not have been imposition or deception as to the reality of his resurrection? All of these and many more objections would doubtless have been raised if opportunity had been given. But he who knows the end from the beginning prevented the possibility of such objections being made by overruling providence. He, over, he ordered things so that the death and burial of Jesus were placed beyond a doubt. So what have we considered this morning? We've considered the eyewitnesses of the women. We've also considered the boldness of Joseph of Arimathea. And we have also considered the fulfillment of Scripture. And all of that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. The burial of Jesus proves that he truly died to pay the penalty of our sin and that his resurrection was not a hoax. Do you understand how important that is? That, that he literally died a death. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus Christ did not die, then you are not truly saved. If he only swooned on a cross to only be resuscitated out of the grave, you and I have no hope this morning. Because of our sin, it necessitated the death of our Savior. Therefore, his death had to be witnessed. It had to be testified to. Our sin required the death of someone who would die in our place. But then this text also bridges the gap to the resurrection that we'll read about and study next week, Lord willing. It points us to the place where the women will return on Sunday morning expecting to find Jesus' body. And it alerts us to the fact that death, though it is necessary, is not the end. And therein lies the hope of the gospel. The good news is that Jesus died and he rose again so that sinners like you and me can receive pardon from our sins and be given eternal life. Not because we've earned it, because there's not a one of us in this room that has, but because God is gracious, because he is merciful to us. I wonder if you recognize that today. Do you recognize the love that Christ has for you? Do you understand that he is willing to suffer the humiliation and the torture of death so that you might be freed from the penalty of your sin? His death was substitutionary. He died in your place. He died in the place of sinners just like you and me who will by faith trust in him and confess him as Lord. Have you done that? Have you confessed your sin to the Lord and trusted in Him to be your Savior? I appeal to you today for the glory of Christ and for your own eternal good that you will trust in Him for your salvation. If you have done that and if your testimony is, I have been saved by the precious blood of Christ and through His resurrection I have been given new life, then I want to leave you with one final thought today. In fact, I wanted it to be my fourth point, but I backed out but I'm gonna give you one more word you can write it down if you want to it's the word gospel I want you to hear what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 6 he starts the verse out by saying what shall we say then shall we continue living in sin so that grace may abound and then he answers his own question and says God forbid how shall we who are dead to sin continue living any longer therein and then he says this 
He says, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, listen, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That is one of the key passages that we as Baptists point to for the reason why when we baptize, we do through full immersion. It's because when we go under the water, we are, we are imitating the, the burial of Jesus Christ. And when we come up, we are showing that we are being raised to newness of life just as Jesus had a new body and a new life. And that is one of the reasons why we do that. But there is a further component of what the Apostle Paul writes here that every believer in this room ought to take note of. And that is, it says that when Jesus died, he showed, when he was buried, it showed that he actually was dead. And so our burial, when we go through the burial of the water, it signifies that we too are dead, but we are dead to sin. We are not just resuscitating an old life and bringing it back so that we carry with it everything that was with us. We have been raised to walk in the newness of life. And that's what Colossians 2.12 says, we were buried with Christ in his baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. An effect of Christ's burial is that we who are his followers are also buried to sin. And our baptism is a picture of that. And so as we close this chapter, as we look forward to the resurrection of Christ for which we will come back, we consider this, the burial of Jesus proves that he truly died to pay the penalty of our sin and that his resurrection was not a hoax. And it further points to the fact that as believers, we are no longer under sin's dominion. Brothers and sisters, don't read the Bible too fast. Stop. Slow down. Allow the scriptures to become alive for you, to explain to you the truth of the doctrine of the Christian faith that has been given to us. This is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together.